Amen. So the question is, is he worthy? And the answer? He is. He is. Our text is going to speak to that this morning. Uh, but before we turn uh, to our text, uh, I just realized thinking that this is my first Sunday in the history of me being a pastor that I, Jen and I are empty nesters. How about that? Yeah. Ride home was a tad sad, and I looked at Jenna and said, well, you got me now to focus on 24-7. I'll be your huckleberry. <laughs> she was like, really? <laughs> that ain't helping, right? Last night we were praying, as we always do before we eat dinner, and just Jenna and I sitting at the table, and she instinctively reached left to hold Joel's hand. And I was like, oh my goodness. So y'all pray for us. We're going to be all right. And so in light of that, Joe's watching online. I'm going to give her a shout out. Hey, Joe, how you doing, baby? You better be up, worse than God. <laughs> so uh, anyway, glad to be with you. This is our second week that we're going to take a break out of Luke. Uh, we'll be back in Luke. We just felt like you needed a breather. Maybe we need a breather too. And we're about chapter 19, so we're heading toward the finish line. But if you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1 this morning. Let me begin. You've heard of the famous book, Homer's Odyssey. And in that book, there's a mythical hero named Odyssey. Odyssey and he's making his way home from war. And he's concerned he is going to encounter the song of the sirens. As he set sail, he's told they will sail by the island where, where the sirens are. Now the sirens are these half-men, half-beast-like creatures. And he is told they sing a song that is so beautiful and so tantalizing that no one can resist their call. That as they sing, every boat and every sailor that sails by that island has to stop and investigate. And if a person hears this siren song, they will follow it. And when they do, they are devoured by the cannibalistic sirens who live on the island. Now they, as, as they approached the island, the Odyssey, Odyssey told his men to plug their ears with wax so they couldn't hear the melody. And he told them to tie, them, tie himself to the mast. He wanted to hear the melody, but he didn't want to be seduced by its beauty to make his men stop there and be devoured. He said, don't release me, no matter what I say. And as they sail by Siren Island, Odyssey is tormented by the melody. But his inability to break free from his chains and his men's inability to hear it because of the wax in their ears made all of them survive that trip by Siren Island. Now the sirens, I believe, are still singing today in our culture. As untold numbers of Christians and those who think they are Christians turn their boats to the sirens and are spiritually led to death and destruction. Some of the lyrics of the siren song today, spiritually speaking, are as follows. Everyone will have eternal life. All religious roads lead to the same God. 
I am a good person and my morality is a part of what gets me to heaven. And I must trust Christ, but I also must be water baptized in order to be saved. The siren song continued recently and a few weeks ago as I read an article, a solid article in the Gospel Coalition that stated the following. 48% of U.S. adults believe salvation can be earned through being good and doing good things. 52% of those who call themselves Christians believe the exact same thing. 46% Pentecostals believe it. 44% of mainline Protestants. 41% of evangelicals. 70% of Catholics. And only 33% of those who say they are Christian believe they will go to heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And a mere 2%, this is unbelievable, but not surprising because of the siren songs that scream to us from our culture, a mere 2% believe they will go to hell. That's it. 25% believe everyone will go to heaven. I don't know of a better place in the entire scripture, especially the New Testament, to understand what it means to be a Christian, what it takes to be a Christian than Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Let me read it for us if I could. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, Paul says, who called you in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel that is contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's some context here this morning that really will help us understand the situation that's going on with the Galatian Christians. This book of Galatians is probably, most say, Paul's first letter, written around 48 A.D. It's about 15 years after his conversion. He went on, a, on his first of three missionary journeys. And in doing so, he planted a church in southern Galatia, which is actually modern-day Turkey. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 13 and 14. It'd be a great read for you uh, later this week. These folks in modern-day Turkey, as we know, are Greeks or Gentiles. And we know, too, that Paul visited this church after he wrote this first letter and two more journeys, or after he planted the church on his second missionary journey, which you can find in Acts 16, and on his third missionary journey, which you can find in Acts chapter 18. And as Paul always did, when he visited a, a, a region, he began to preach the gospel. 
And as people responded appropriately to the gospel, Paul would plant a church and usually stay there for some amount of time to continue to disciple them and help them grow. Then he would leave it in leadership and go plant another church. I am God, uh, I'm reminded studying that this week, that I'm thankful God only called me to help plant one. I don't know if we want to do it again, right? Uh, We're going to let some of you do that maybe in the years to come. But after Paul left, he received this shocking news that these new Christians in Galatia were already fallen prey to the siren song of the teaching of what many called or many said were by the Judaizers. They were so quickly rowing toward the island of the sirens, and more importantly, they were listening to the corrupt melody that was coming out of the Judaizers' mouths. So Paul writes this letter to put a stop to the tempting deceit they were beginning to believe about the gospel. Now, who are these Judaizers? Well, they came from Jerusalem. They were supposedly projecting themselves as Jewish Christians. They didn't come in with a t-shirt that said, I hate Jesus. No, they came in as friends of the church. They came in not hostile, but they came in after Paul left. And this is really what made them so dangerous. And it is why churches must at all costs protect the flock, the church itself, from these kind of corrupt teachers. They basically said, what Paul told you was great. Look, that's great. Trust in Jesus as your Savior. But, but Paul didn't have enough time to really explain to you everything that you need to know. That There's another side of this. There's another half of this, if you would. And you got to remember, us Jews... We, we've been walking with the living God a lot longer than you have, so, so listen to us. And the other side of this is trust Jesus as Savior, yes, but also in order to be saved, you must come through the religion of Judaism. You must practice the Sabbath. You must obey the Mosaic laws. You must be circumcised. You must follow the Jewish laws and ceremonies. Salvation is Faith in Christ plus Judaism. That was their message. Paul's response here. He says, I am astonished. That word is only used. Paul only used that word two other times in the entire scriptures. One was to describe the glory of God and one was to describe a situation that was incredibly sinful. Paul says here, I am astonished first that you would desert him, that you would turn to a different gospel and that you would forget there's only one gospel. So after Paul heard about this deception among the people that he knew, that he loved, that he led to Christ, that he discipled, Paul picks up his quill and he was hot. He was ticked. He was shocked. He was astonished. He was flabbergasted. Some have said Paul was experiencing what Moses experienced on Mount Sinai when he came down from receiving the Ten Commandments and he saw the people of God, the Israelites, worshiping a golden calf after God had been so faithful to lead them by night by fire 
and during the day by a cloud, and to daily feed them bread and manna. And Moses was what? Ticked. Rightly so. Paul is shocked. Yes. This is the maddest we ever see Paul in the New Testament. But he's not shocked that Satan has been singing a siren song of his own, of this false gospel that, that Satan masquerades through his followers. A, uh, and they go around masquerading lies. But he is shocked with the response of the Galatians because he was so clear with them about this gospel. He had taught it so well. So he launches into this warrior-like assault on these lies, knowing the seriousness of what is at stake. What is at stake here? Why is Paul so ticked and serious? What's at stake is the souls of men and women. If you believe a false gospel and you think you're saved... You will be shocked when you get to heaven and God says, remember the passage? But Lord, Lord. He says, I'm astonished. Verse 6, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. Notice that I am astonished that you are deserting him. The Galatians are not deserting some kind of message, although the gospel is a message. The, the Galatians are deserting God himself. They are deserting him, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. This word desert means to transfer your allegiance to be a traitor or a turncoat. Paul's saying, I am shocked. I am astonished that you are becoming a spiritual turncoat. We know, we know our Bibles, this is not some nitpicky doctrinal issue in which we need to have some kind of level of flexibility. This is the core of Christianity. Paul is saying, I'm shocked that you are turning from a person. I am shocked that you are turning from this sweet, intimate relational connection with the living God of the universe because of his initiative to call you to himself. John Piper puts it this way. Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God and people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It is a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. When a person really comes to Christ, what happens is they have to get to this point where they desert or leave what they have relied on all their lives, their own goodness, their own good works. And these folks here are turning back to the exact thing that God saved them from, from themselves, from their own effort, from their own goodness, 
from their own religious rituals. The verb tense of this phrase actually reads, and this is important, you are in the process of deserting God. Practically, we would say they are, in, they are starting to go in the wrong direction. So a question that we must ask and answer, so having after supposedly come to Christ, will they lose their salvation if they keep going this way? Let me be very clear. If they are truly saved, they cannot lose what they did not earn. If you are truly saved, you cannot lose what you did not earn. However, if they are false believers, here's what 1 John 2.9 says about them. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If they are not saved, they will eventually hit eject completely. Remember, Paul, though, is writing to Christians. He shared the gospel with them. He saw them understand the gospel. He saw them turn away from their own good works and religious system and place their trust in Christ alone. <clears throat> and we also know that Paul returned twice to them after this letter. So this letter served as a warning, if you would. This letter served as correction, and it seems that they, the Galatians, the majority of them, responded to Paul's correction here. Paul even reminds them of what happened to them when they came to Christ in Galatians 3, a few chapters over. Listen to what he says. He says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Paul says the key element of a Christian being a Christian is the indwelling of the Spirit of God in them. Paul says, look, you were doing your very best to earn your way to God. You were falling short. You heard the gospel. You placed your trust in Christ. The Spirit of God came in you. It was of no work of your own. And now you're trying to go back and earn your way. So we ask the question, if they are truly saved, what is the danger to the believer if they continue down this path? If they're truly saved, they will stay saved. But there is a danger, and Ephesians 4.14 is one of the many pictures of what will happen to this Christian. Paul writes, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. A Christian who is truly a Christian who continues down this path will continue to be deceived. They will continue to be immature. And they will also be held accountable that they spread a false gospel. Some of us have not grown spiritually because we still have inserted us in, us in this thing called the gospel. It is beautiful when we get to this point when the gospel is only about Christ and it takes us to a place of worship. It places, grace actually calls us to surrender, not 
move forth with white-knuckled self-effort flesh. He also says he's astonished they turn to a different gospel. In reality, there's only one gospel and there's no other. There's no such thing as a small variation of the gospel. We don't tamper with the gospel. The false teachers, he says, are disturbing the Galatians. This word disturb is, is insightful to us of what's happening to them inside of them, what's happening to them emotionally and spiritually. Disturb means to shake up, to cause internal chaos, to agitate, to bring anxiety and doubt, to rattle them. That's what they're feeling. When you start trusting in yourself to be saved and your performance and your good works, <laughs> that's exactly what happens. Have I done enough? I have seen men die and heard of men dying. And their last thought was, am I good enough? Did I do enough? Paul tells them in Galatians 5, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you trust in circumcision or anything else in the Jewish religious system, Christ will be no advantage to you. I testify again, he continues, to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Paul says, if you want to go down that route, and you want to go back to your old religious system. You got to do it perfect. Because if you mess up one time, you've broken the law, and now you need a Savior. If we abandon the gospel of grace, we go back to trying to be good enough, and that never works well for us. It brings internal chaos to our souls. It brings a lack of peace to us that Christ gives us when we trust in him alone. Matter of fact, up in verse 4, Paul greeted them. You do know this greeting is the shortest greeting of any of Paul's letters. And just on a side note, there was no praise. There was no excitement to see them because he wasn't excited to see them. He was in correction mode, but he did give us the gospel in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave them this picture of the gospel. And part of this picture of the gospel is not only grace, but peace. And there's no peace for the man or woman who is earning his own way, even if it's subconsciously. And then lastly, Paul says, they forgot. I'm astonished that you forgot there is only one gospel. And when we forget there's only one gospel, it means that the gospel has been distorted. And that's what Paul tells them here. This word distort means to pervert something and make it exactly the opposite of what it is intended to be. Look, if grace is earned, it is no longer grace. If grace is earned, it is no longer grace. Like the siren song, the Galatians gave it a hearing and were wooed to its deception. And it's so enticing. It is so enticing for us to trust in us. It is so, it's so inherent in us. 
Because we compare ourselves horizontally much of the time, consciously or subconsciously, when in reality we ought to be comparing ourselves to a holy God. We are just that sinful to be enticed to really believe we can trust in us. Paul goes on next in verses 8 and 9. He, he lays out or describes God's curse to those who believe and preach that there's more than one gospel. He uses this word accursed. It is the Greek word for anathema. And the word anathema here means divine condemnation or to be damned to hell. And in him saying it twice, back to back, in the Greek language, it only intensifies what he means and the seriousness of it. At this point, Paul's pen may be smoking. <laughs> he may have to switch pens because it is on fire. The person that teaches a false gospel, Paul says, no matter who they are, if it be me, if it be an angel, obviously hypothetical there because Paul and the angels probably aren't going to do that. But he's saying, even if it was me or an angel, they are to be condemned. Anathema, double accursed. In verse 8, Paul did speak of the hypothetical. He said, if anyone does preach. And in verse 9, he speaks of the actual. If anyone is preaching. These are the heaviest words that the apostle Paul ever wrote it is because there are things worth fighting for as I said earlier as Christians there are things we must be flexible with they are non-essentials but the first essential what makes a church a church what makes a Christian a Christian is the gospel so Paul knows when he we add anything to what Christ has done. What we are saying is this. That Jesus, you lived an amazing life. I am so thankful that you died. But it wasn't quite enough. And I promise you, Jesus. I promise you with all my effort and all my goodness, I will do my part to make up, to make it full so I can get to heaven and be saved. When I say that, it makes me want to gag. I hope when you hear it, it makes you want to gag too. If we really understand what God says about our sin and our need and our destiny without God's gracious call to us to come to him through Christ alone. If a person teaches anything but by grace alone, in Christ alone, for salvation alone, and people believe it, then they will think they are safe. They will think they are good spiritually. They will think they have their golden ticket. And this is tragic, beyond tragic, because reality is, Paul says, they will spin Eternity in hell separated from God because they have believed in another gospel. 
because there's only one gospel. That is why Paul is so furious here and so strong. There is so much at stake. I want to give us five false gospels just as an illustration quickly that we must understand are false gospels in our day. The first is the Roman Catholic's doctrine on salvation. The Apostle Paul is saying here, even him or an angel or a pope, if they preach to you another gospel, anathema to them. I want to read from you directly from the doctrine of Roman Catholics. I'm not making this up and I'm not stretching it and it's not a personal attack on a person. It is what the Roman Catholics believe as a church. Christ died on the cross to purchase man's salvation, but salvation is only satisfied as it is to be distributed to men through the sacraments or through the Pope and even Peter, who they call the key bearer of heaven, and to his successors, the, the popes after Peter, who was the first, quote-unquote, who are Christ's vicars on earth. It goes on to say, for it is through Christ's Catholic Church alone. That should be a red flag. Which is the universal help towards salvation. That the fullness of the means of salvation can be attained. Paul would say to them, if you accept the teachings of the Catholic Church, Christ has no advantage to you as he said to them in Galatians 5.2. Secondly, the church of Christ, which we're inundated with. Many of you came from that background before you got to fellowship. Their doctrine specifically adds water baptism in order for a person to be saved. The scriptures, though, teach that baptism is an outward display of the inner reality of salvation that has already taken place in a person. Paul would say, if you accept water baptism as a necessity for salvation, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You nullify the work of Christ. We think in baptism is important in our church. We just did one a few weeks ago. But I remember very specifically after coming to Christ at East Carolina University, a couple days later, one of my coaches that was in the Church of Christ came to me and said, Jeff, I heard through the grapevine that you came to Christ. And man, I'm so excited for you, but now I want to get you baptized. So if you were to die tonight or had a car wreck, you'd be sure that you'd go to heaven. You know what it caused? Caused internal chaos and anxiety and doubt. And I went back to the Joe Schrader who told me, bro, we're going to baptize you. We're going to find a big old tub and hold you down because you got a lot of sin. But if you die tonight, all you need is your trust in Christ. I remember at Clemson University when men that I shared the gospel with, athletes, would come to Christ. They would be inundated with Church of Christ folks on campus, again, causing this chaos 
Paul says, if you accept baptism as a necessity for salvation, Christ has no advantage to you. Third is universalism. It's the doctrine that all sinful and alienated human souls directly from their website because of divine love and mercy will ultimately be reconciled to God. You ever seen that African-American sports reporter, that little gift that comes out? What's, I can't remember his name. He goes, what's his name? Y'all don't know, do you? Teaching a bunch of non-sports people here. <laughs> but the gift would say, nope. If you accept universalism, Christ has no advantage to you. Fourth is good works. I would say that I am astonished. I am astonished when people are sitting in my office or other conversations and I speak or speaking to people who've been in church their whole life and I ask the simple question, if you were to die tonight and stood before God and he said, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? And immediately what comes out of their mouth is a list of good, their good works and of their goodness. If that is the answer, if you accept your good works as a part of your salvation, Christ has no advantage to you. And then lastly, the prosperity gospel which states the atonement or reconciliation with God is interpreted to include the, the elevation of sickness, alleviation of sickness and poverty, which are viewed as curses to be broken by faith. This believed to be achieved through donations of money, visualization, and positive confessions. If you accept the prosperity gospel, Christ has no advantage to you. Paul has said, I'm astonished that you would desert him, that you would turn to a different gospel, that you would forget there is one gospel. Then Paul unpacks for us God's curse to those who believe and preach another gospel. And then lastly, Paul shows us the power to be faithful to only one gospel. Verse 10, let me read it. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here's what's happening here. We know that the Apostle Paul, before he came to Christ, in the, early in the book of Acts, on the road to Damascus, when he was struck down and blinded by the grace of God, we know that he was a man pleaser. He was a man pleaser because what he cared about were the externals. How fast and high he could rise in the pharisaical system, how much clout he could have, how much power he could have, how his contemporaries and those around him would laud him for his wisdom and spiritual insights. All he did was about Paul. Paul. 
Matter of fact, the need for us to find our worth and value in the words and attitudes of others is at the very heart of the siren song. It is what pulsates in every one of our veins. It is exactly why a lot of churches won't even teach this passage in Galatians 1. It's why Christians, we can melt, we can just emotionally melt in the face of a person who, who we know are believing in a false gospel and we say nothing to them because we want them to like us so much and we don't want to have conflict. And Paul obviously tells us how to do that. He says, look, don't have conflict over unnecessary things. Don't, don't be a rabble rouser and start conflicts with people because of nitpicky doctrine. He says, matter of fact, remove Every obstacle except the gospel. And if you must have conflict, have it over the gospel. Have gracious conflict. But we melt and we say nothing because we want them to like us. And that is antithetical to the scriptures. Unloving <laughs> because so much is at stake. If Paul were living for men's pleasure, he would not have written this letter to the Galatians. Oh, those Galatians are good folks. They just got a little confused. I love you, Galatians. Hey, remember this, you know, make sure Jesus stays first. <laughs> Paul had come to a place where faith in Christ alone Plus, nothing equals everything. I think Scripture says we need a new song to drown out the siren song of the world. About all the lies concerning the salvation of men and women's souls. And thank goodness we have a new song. It's called the New Testament. <laughs> it's called the Scriptures. And it sings to us over 300 verses in the New Testament alone that speak specifically about placing our trust in Christ alone, by faith alone, for salvation alone. I love the passage. My wife and the women in our church have been studying the book of Titus. So we've been having conversations and I was reminded of this gospel beautiful song that counteracts, if you would, puts wax in our ears toward the siren songs of our culture when it comes to the gospel. I put it in your notes. Read with me, for, not out loud, but silently. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified, which means now 
God sees you just as if you've never sinned and just as if you've always done what's right so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Not only did Paul unpack and define and explain the gospel, he also unpacked and defined and explained the order of our good works. Believe and then do. Believe in the gospel and out of God, transforming the inside souls of a man and woman, that's what puts his hands to the plow and his feet are fast toward good works. Love that passage. So this morning as we wrap up and ask the question, so what? Man, you, you got to ask yourself the question. This is a gospel-centered church. That's what we call ourselves. Have I believed the real gospel? If you haven't, I beg you to come talk to me or Monty. Email us this week. Come chat with us. Man, we want to clarify that. And once you get clarified on that, you've got to ask yourself the question, have I heard the siren song where I'm milly-willy when it comes to the gospel? Maybe even using those five examples that I gave you. Take a minute to ask yourself the question, so what? Lord Jesus, we thank you individually and corporately as a church that you called us to yourself by the grace of the Lord Jesus and his death and the shedding of his blood to forgive our sins for all of eternity. We rest in that. The songwriter it was so famous song, Amazing Grace. We rest in your amazing grace. Lord, protect us through the truth of the scriptures.
from hearing the siren song in our culture and buying into it. Lord, I'm sure all of us have loved ones and maybe even children who, who have believed the lies that the Galatians believed about salvation. Help us with great wisdom and grace and yet truth to have those conversations even if they don't like us because of it. We may be men and women who are Christ pleasers, not man pleasers. Love you. Thank you for your word. And everyone said, amen.